We'll continue working through Ephesians this morning. If you take your Bible and open to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to finish chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll look today at verses 21 and 22, uh, but I'm going to start in verse 19 to to give you the context. So Ephesians chapter 2 will begin in verse 19, and our focus will be on the church. Uh, This is one of the themes of the book of Ephesians, and this is one of the, the joys of studying the book and reading through it is you learn things about the church. Uh, in fact, I'm becoming convinced that the, the gravity that the book of Ephesians places on the church is just unmatched in the New Testament. I've got to study a little more to confirm that. But Ephesians says some things about the church that are just incredibly striking, that are powerful. I pray life-changing. Uh, this morning is one of those passages. It's just gripping what the Word of God says about the importance and the gravity of the church. We see that in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19, where the Scripture says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom... The whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What we have in verses 21 and 22 are two parallel statements. Uh, They're two statements that essentially say the same thing, or they say very similar things. You find these parallel statements all through your Bible, like in the Psalms, they're common where David will say, Lord, we praise you for your steadfast love. Lord, we sing to you for your mercy. Those are parallel statements. Or if, if I were to say, New Orleans has a good football team because of their quarterback, a parallel statement would be, the Saints are competitive because of Drew Brees. It's essentially saying the same thing, but saying it in two different ways. And that's what you have here in verses 21 and 22, which is fitting because this is finishing up a section in chapter 2. Chapter 2 has presented this powerful picture of what you once were before Christ and what you now are. And a big part of what you now are is that you're a member of the household of God. That's what we've been talking about here. And now at the conclusion, there are two parallel statements that essentially just increase the gravity about what it means to be in the church, what it means to be in the people of God. So I'm going to focus on and and teach through both of these passages together. I think that's the best way to handle it because they're parallel statements. And notice how it begins. It begins the way you would expect it to begin after you've read through Ephesians 1 and 2 with the focus being on Jesus Christ. Verse 21 begins, in whom? Literally, it's in him. And notice also, verse 22 begins, in him. And here again you see the centrality of Jesus Christ. That the household of God is built on Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. We're reminded again of the central importance of Jesus Christ in the church. Like Paul declared to the Corinthians, I delivered unto you as of first importance the gospel, this message about Jesus Christ. Here it is again. Your relationship to God comes through him. It's in him. God works in the world to carry out his purposes 
in him. It's in Christ. And now we're going to see what we have as the people of God in the church because of in Christ. So first of all, you see again the cornerstone of the church. One of the hopes of teaching through a book of the Bible is you learn the book. And again, one of the characteristics of Ephesians that is just unmistakable is the centrality of Jesus Christ. God's working, God's salvation, your relationship to God is in him. With the hopes of throughout the rest of our life, when we're reading through the book of Ephesians, you'll recall some of these things. The centrality of him, you see the cornerstone of the church. Secondly, you see the unity of the church in these two parallel statements. You see the unity of the church, another theme in the book of Ephesians, a theme we'll revisit more and more, especially when we get into chapters 4 and 5, the unity of the church. You see it here because notice what's happening in Christ in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together, verse 22, in him you also are being built together. The structure here being the the idea of the church, the metaphor of the church. And in verse 21, look what's happening to us. We're being joined together. That word joined together is the same word that describes the bringing together of a husband and wife. It describes, it's a medical term that was used to refer to the bringing together of two joints so that they would work together. And notice in the church, in Christ, we're being joined together. So you see again the significance of the relationship to the people of God in the church. You're joined together. You're being joined together. Or the other analogy in verse 22, in him you also are being built together. Now the you also there is is a reference to the fact that it's not just Jews. It's all believers in Jesus Christ. We're being built together. That word built together is a a common word that you'll find all through your New Testament. As you study the idea of the church, it's the idea of the building of a house. That as as a person today builds a house and there's different constituent parts and there's a process in the building that must be carried out, that's the analogy here for the church. You're being built. We're all being built. There's unity here. Joined together, built together. Notice the word together. You see that? Very intentional. Together. And I think that's, that's at the heart of the meaning of what Paul says here. Together. And that's what Ephesians 2 has all been about. It's about the togetherness of different people from different backgrounds. That, that essentially our t- togetherness transcends the differences that exist among us. And there are many differences among us. There are ethnic differences among us. There are social differences among us. There are a lot of background differences among us. The the people in Ephesus were from a variety of religious backgrounds. But now they've been brought together. They're being joined together. They're being built together in Christ. And so it is with us. And that's why the theme here is unity. Unity. Regardless of the the characteristics of the world and our experience and our background or the realities of our ethnicity that we cannot change, in Christ we're built together. Just a few warnings that I think are important to mention. Number one, beware divisions in the church. You, You see here that 
we should be joined together and built together. Listen to what John Stott says. He says it better than me. Let me quote an older man, uh, a wiser man, to, to, to show you what I mean about beware divisions in the church. Here's what Stott says commenting on this passage. That is the vision. But when we turn from the ideal portrayed in Scripture to the concrete realities experienced in the church today, it is a very different and very tragic story. For even in the church there is often alienation, disunity, and discord. And Christians erect new barriers in place of the old, which Christ has demolished. Now a color bar, now racism, nationalism, or tribalism. Now personal animosities engendered by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and the unforgiving spirit. Now a divisive system of caste or class. Now a clericalism which sunders clergy from laity as if they were separate breeds of human being. Now a denominationalism which turns churches into sects and contradicts the unity and universality of Christ's church. How dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human institution or community in which he has destroyed them. And isn't it just heartbreaking? And We love the church, we love the Bible, we love sound doctrine, and we see division everywhere we turn. It's just, it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking. I mean, I just, I have friends, I have personal friends who believe essentially the same thing. But on Facebook, they post things and they say things that are divisive and unhelpful at best. And it just boggles the mind as to why the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the most important mission in history, in existence, to take the gospel to the nations, the most important institution ever, the church, is so ravaged by divisions. But we see here in Ephesians a very different picture, purpose, and goal, we're being joined together. You also, regardless of who you are, if you're in Christ, you're being built together. That's the picture that we want to strive for in the church, not artificial barriers, worldly burial barriers. What can you do something? What can you do about this? Well, do something about it. Love one another. Reach out to others. Study the Bible. Pray with one another. Seek to understand the truth based on God's Word. Obviously, there will be divisions. But there are some important things for us to think about when we consider division in the church. Because the, the, there will be divisions, and sometimes it's necessary. But it's undeniable within the New Testament, and especially within Ephesians, there is a high premium put on unity. So I would just say as a warning, we better be really careful about what we divide over. Be very careful. Here's just some th ways to think through that issue. Number one, did Jesus and the apostles divide over it? There are issues that the apostles divided with people over. We should divide with people over those issues. The first one that's preeminently important is the gospel. There are people that believe and teach other gospels. You should divide with them over that. Or there are people that believe and teach other gods, other Jesuses. There are many people who believe and teach a different Jesus than the Bible. This is something the apostles divided with people over. You study what Jesus divided with the Pharisees over. 
We want to draw the lines where the Scripture draws the lines. Another question to ask is, does God's Word require me to divide over this, or does it command me to divide over this? Or you could ask the question, is there a biblical reason for this division? Is the Word of God driving this, or is it something else? And of course, there are, other, there are different levels of division as well. Like, for instance, the Word of God drives my view of baptism. I think in the Scripture it's very clear that only believers were baptized, and baptism, by definition, is by immersion. That's different than what Presbyterians believe. But they believe the same gospel. But I can't be a Presbyterian because I think I'm convinced from the Scripture what it says about baptism and who's baptized. I'm convinced from the Bible of that. Another thing that's really important to consider when we think about division, because it's such a reality, isn't it, in the world, but again, sadly, in the church. Here's a really, I believe, important consideration to think. Is my heart right before God? Am I walking, am I living according to the Word of God in my life? And what I mean by that is, am I being humble? Very clearly, a requirement of God for me to walk and live in humility. Because you know so much division is characterized and poisoned by and corrupted by pride, isn't it? I know if there's pride in my heart or pride is part of the reason or part of the expression of the division, then I know I'm in the wrong, at least in that point. The way I'm bringing it about. So searching our own hearts. Am I being tenderhearted? Do I have a forgiving spirit or am am I just seeking to be quarrelsome? We were division in the church because we're supposed to be joined together and built together. Just a couple other shorter warnings. Beware individualism and the tendencies towards self-centeredness. I think just by nature, a lot of us are individualistic, especially it's somewhat in our American DNA to get after it, do it yourself. And there's some truth to that, but you better be careful how far you push that in the church. Because the church, by definition, is a together, together. I would also encourage you, based on this passage, since we're a structure joined together, we're also to be built together, we're being built together, you should prioritize the coming together of the church. How can you be joined together and be built together if you're not meeting together? If you're not knowing one another? You should prioritize the, the worship of God on Sunday. We know from the Scripture, the early church set aside the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, for a time of coming together. It's a good pattern to follow. And, and, and the reality is, the way in which God works, the Word of God, the fellowship of God's people, the prayers, the singing, this spiritually helps you. So prioritize that. And I say that because I want what's best for you and what's good for you. You can also prioritize other coming together with other Christians that edifies your soul. Like David mentioned earlier, this week we're starting again home fellowships. Talk to one of us and find out how you can get involved in that. This Thursday morning at 6.30, if that works in your schedule, Thursday morning at 6.30 here in the gym, we're going to have a men's breakfast. This is a way that, this is a, a means by which I believe you can be 
being joined together and being built together. And not only that, there's a growing that takes place in this. And now look at verse 21. And incidentally, if you study verse 21 and 22, there's, there's, there's one main difference, and it's this verb. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being built together grows. Grows. You see the growth of the church here. That this is the expectation for every Christian that we be growing. And notice how the growing takes, takes place. You are joined together and then you grow. As you're being joined together, you grow. I don't think the growth happens apart from the being joined together. The growth is a result of being joined together. This is naturally what is supposed to happen in the church of those who are in Christ. Spiritual growth for God's people happens within the household of God. That just makes sense. God's people grow in the household of God. So we see the growing of the church. Let me give you some other scriptures that talk about the growing of the church because there's much about this, especially in, in the letters to the churches. And hopefully this will help you think and consider and understand what the New Testament means when it talks about the church growing and the growth of the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This is about church growth. This is about the body of those who are in Christ growing together. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, there's some church growth we'd love to see, isn't it? Faith growing. Faith increasing. Love for one another increasing. It's not like you ever hit a level where, okay, I've got all the love for everybody. Got that down. No, it's always an increasing, a growth. One of my favorite passages, 2 Peter 3.18. This is the last words of Peter to the church. This brother who is this big-mouthed spokesman often opens his mouth a lot. But a leader and a friend personally to our Lord Jesus Christ, here's his last words to the church. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And then Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4, how it picks up the similar imagery as we have here in verse 21 of being joined together and growing. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So a pressing question for us always is, in the church, are we growing? Well, are you growing? Is the church growing? Are we growing into a holy temple of 
the Lord. If, we, if you're not growing, why not? Why not? What do you need to do? What, what, how can we in the church, particularly how can pastors help? Because that's at the, the heart of our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That, that Ephesians 4 passage I read follows on the heels of what pastors are supposed to be doing in the church, equipping the saints, bringing about growth, spiritual growth of the, the membership. What can we do to help? Let us know. Friends, are you receding in your faithfulness? Or are you progressing in your faithfulness? We should always be striving to progress. What about 2020? The, day, the days to come, the months to come. Will you be growing? Well, that's the picture of the church. And now we move into the next point about what we see the church as. And this is where the gravity really strikes me, at least. You see the church as the holy temple of God and as the dwelling place of God. That's amazing. And that's what this scripture says. Look at what we're being built into. Look at what we're growing into. First of all, in verse 21, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, built together into a dwelling place for God. The church as a holy temple of God, where God dwells. This is the, the word that's used to refer to the holy of holies, this most holy place in Judaism, which again is just mind-blowing when you think about Ephesians 2. And he's talking about the Gentiles coming in. Where are they coming into? They're coming into the very temple of God. In fact, they are the temple of God now in Christ. What an audacious thought. This is what we're supposed to be joined together for. To be the holy temple of God as the church. Well, a couple things. First of all, again, I hope you see the importance of the church. This is one of the things Ephesians teaches us. One of the characteristics of this book. There are things that Ephesians says about the church that you'll find nowhere else in Scripture. There's going to be one in chapter 3 that we're looking forward to about the church sending a message to demons. That's interesting. There's one in Ephesians 5 about marriage being a picture of the church. And in studying this this week, I just, became, I just realized my view of the church is too small. And I, and I fear that's the case for many people, that we underestimate the significance of the church. Just, look, just listen to it. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the church, if you read the context, the household of God. Growing into the holy temple of the Lord. Is the temple important in the Old Testament? Yeah. And not only that, growing into, look at the parallel statement, a dwelling place for God. One of the themes you find in the Old Testament is, is the idea of the nearness of God to his people. The nearness of God to his people. And, and the promise of God dwelling with his people. This is a great hope of God's people all through the Old Testament. And now you see Paul appropriating that language and applying it to the church. Where does God dwell? In his people. That's where he dwells. In the church. That's important. 
That's powerful. Now, the last point of these verses are the last two words of verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So I think this explains how this comes about. It's already said it's in Christ. In the Lord also can be translated by the Lord. Verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Do you see how this comes about? It's by the Lord and by the Spirit. It's in the Lord, it's in the Spirit, meaning it's their work. That's what it means. In fact, not to put you to sleep, but just to reveal something about this passage that's important. You see, joined together and built together, those verbs, those are passive verbs. A passive verb means it's being acted on by something. And this verse tells you what's acting upon it. What is doing the joining together? The Lord. What is doing the building together? The Spirit. So here you see the Lord's work and the Spirit's work in church growth. It corresponds with what Jesus said. You know, Jesus didn't use the word church much. But one of the places he did use the word church, he said, I will build my church. You're built together, you're joined together by the Lord's work. And it's by the Spirit's work. So it's the great hope and encouragement to the apostles. Jesus is going to send the Spirit and he's going to teach them all things. He's going to gift them and empower them. You're built by the Spirit. Now, just two more points about this. Number one, you see the work of the Trinity. Don't miss this. Verse 22. In Him, that's in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In fact, a good little practice today, if you want a, Saturday, a Sunday afternoon Bible study activity, look at a, let's, just, let's just make it Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and find the Trinity in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And see how often you find references to God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's the triune work of God in the church. Finally, there are just, let me just give you an overview of some principles of church growth in this passage. And I say this because this idea of church growth is like a buzz term in our day, or at least it was a few years ago. It still is. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. There's a lot of craziness about it. <laughs> um, I'm not going to take all of our time with this, but whenever I moved to Mississippi, shortly after, a person gave me a book, and I love to get books. I'm a book nerd. And this was a book, the, the cover was weird, and I'm okay with weird. And it was a church growth book, uh, which, by the way, I read, used to read every once in a while, church growth books, see what they're saying, see what they're thinking, see how weird they can be. And this is a bizarre book. In fact, this is, one of the, this is one of the few books in the history of my life that I threw away. There's maybe 10 books in my life's history I've thrown away. That's one of them. The point is there's a lot of weird stuff being published, propagated out there under the heading of here's how you grow the church. And what it almost always means is here's how you get more numbers. Now, again, let me remind you, we want more numbers. Do you know why? Because we want more people believing the gospel and growing and being discipled. We want that. We want that. But how do you 
get that. And what do you do with those who have believed? Are you growing them into a holy temple of the Lord? That's the goal here. That's the, that's the picture of the church here. Is what you're doing going to bring that about? Well, just some principles of church growth from this passage. Number one, church growth takes place in Christ. In Him. That's our focus and that's our message. It's in Him. Number two, church growth is for the church. It's for Christians. That's our purpose. We want to see Christians joined together, built together, growing. Church growth is for the church. Thirdly, church growth leads to holiness in the Lord, growing into a holy temple. That's our goal. Our goal is to be a dwelling place for God. And we're in the process of being built into that. Church growth comes by the Lord and by the Spirit. That's our dependence. That's our dependence. That's why this growth that we see in Ephesians 2 is not achieved by worldly means. It's not by man's engineering. I had an executive-level type person tell me one time, you know what you really need in your church? You know, I went to this person for advice. My goodness, I want to see our church thrive. What do I need? His answer, what you need is a gimmick. (laughs) That's crazy. No, that's a bad answer. What we need is the gospel. What we need is the word of God. What we need is the spirit of God. Right to be born again is a supernatural spiritual work God brings about. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need to follow the paradigm put forth in the Word of God. And and there's all these pushes today, there's all these ideas about reinventing the church. How about reinvent the church into this? Growing into the Holy Temple. Being built into the dwelling place of God. Here's a great way to think about the church and what we are and what we're striving for and how it's going to happen. It happens because of the Savior's sacrifice. Jesus, our Lord, was pierced in his feet, in his hands, in his side. His head was pierced by a crown of thorns. His blood was shed as a sacrificial offering to save your soul if you're a believer. God sent his own son. God had mercy on us sinners. Praise God, God gives grace. There was, a guy, there was a time when God had determined to wipe out all of life because of the sinfulness of man. The, the thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God. God gives grace. God has grace. God sent his own son. He demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why you should... Turn from your sin. Jesus came and died on the cross because of our sins, for our sins, to pay for our sins. Do you understand that you're a sinner? Do you understand the weight of your sins? Those of you who haven't repented of your sins, do you understand the condemnation that that is upon you, that the wrath of God rests upon you because of your sin? But there's forgiveness through Christ. This is the best news ever. This is why you young people in this room, there's some of you who've not repented of your sins. Today you should 
You should confess your sins, you should turn from them, and you should trust Jesus to forgive you and bring you to God. Because there's nothing you can do or will ever be able to do about your sin. Just try and you'll fail. And that's why Jesus came and died as a sacrifice to forgive you of your sin. And that's why today, by the grace of God, you should, you should repent. You should trust Jesus, who's merciful to save. You must be born again. And it's the work of the Spirit. So we'll pray for the Spirit to do His work. As the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's important to our Lord that we remember His death. His death, His body and His blood given for you. That's what Paul reminds the Corinthians church. This, his body and His blood was given for you. What an amazing thought that is thinking about who we are. So when we take the Lord's Supper, when you take the cup and the bread, you remember him. You remember him. It's for believers in Christ, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you have believed, if you know you're trusting Jesus and you've not been baptized, you should do that. You should obey the Lord. It's a matter of doing what Jesus says and, and be baptized. Today, if you're following the Lord and living for Him, there's a, there's a warning that comes with taking the Lord's Supper, and it, it's to not take it in an unworthy manner and to eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. And so the, the, the challenge is to examine yourself. We consider our heart. Am I, am I repentant of my sins? Am I living for the Lord? He said, are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you resting each moment in the crucified? Are you, are you trusting His grace? To get you to God. Now's a good time for self-examination. As I encourage the deacons are going to come forward. We praise God for these faithful brothers who serve us, serve this body in so many ways. They're going to distribute the bread and the cup. And you take the time to examine yourself and to remember Christ.